Hi, everyone. It's Nika, the founder of Urban Remedy, welcoming you to the You Are Love podcast, inspiring health through food, lifestyle, and making conscious choices. At Urban Remedy, we are a certified organic company. So today I'm really excited to have Dr. Jessica Shade on as our guest, where we are going to be diving in deep to everything organic related to organic, non-GMO, GMO, conventional, regenerative farming. And hopefully we're going to be answering all of your questions today. Dr. Shade is the Director of Science Programs at the Organic Center, where she directs projects associated with communicating and conducting research related to organic agriculture. And she also does collaborations and projects, um, including mitigating climate change and farm biodiversity. And we'll talk to her more about her other projects because I'm sure there's a lot more. Thank you so much, Dr. Shade, for coming on today. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy to be here. So, you know, we'll post things about the difference between organic and non-GMO just to try to educate people because I think a lot of people are confused, you know, just about the basics. So I think it would be fun um, and interesting for our listeners to start with the basics. So let's start with, you know, what is organic compared to non-GMO? Because I think that's a really good one. Because I think right now, a lot of people will see like non-GMO verified products and think it's the same as organic. So we've been kind of trying to educate people on what the difference is. Do you want to start there? Yeah, that sounds great. And, you know, people, a lot of the time they focus on what organic isn't. So organic definitely means always no GMO. That is part of organic. It means no synthetic toxic fertilizers or pesticides. It means no antibiotics or growth hormones, no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, no sewage sludge or ionizing radiation. But there's also a lot more to organic about what organic is, not just what it isn't. Like um, organic farmers need to prove that they're maintaining and enhancing soil health. They have to show that they're protecting water quality and maintaining biodiversity. Organic farmers use integrative pest management that focuses on cultural, biological, and mechanical practices to fight pests and weeds. And then for livestock, animals have to be given 100% organic feed with a large part of their diet coming from pasture, which they're required to have access to and be grazed throughout the grazing season. You know, there's a lot that organic isn't, um, all things that you don't want in your food, but then there's also a lot about what organic is. And that part of the story is really uplifting and Um, a little bit more, I would say, joyous than just looking at what organic isn't. I love that. That's, I love that. That's really good. Because a lot of times we will say, you know, this is what organic means. And it's a lot of the things that you just listed out. Like it doesn't have GMOs. It's not sprayed with, you know, things like glyphosate. Um, and it's better for the soil. It's better for the planet. It's better for your body. And then a lot of times people will say, but... X, Y, and Z and what it is. So I want to, I definitely want to dive into some of those questions. And, but why don't you first talk about that then now that you've said what organic is, what about the difference between non-GMO verified products? Sure. So non-GMO verified products um, guarantee that that product doesn't have GMOs in it. And it's a testing based method. Um, Organic also has a non-GMO component. So genetic modification is a banned practice within organic. There cannot be any GMOs used in organic. 
Um, but then organic has a lot of other factors with it. And so um, it's kind of interesting because a lot of the single um, issue labels are really great for people who are shopping to understand. They really have that kind of um, intuitive sense to them. Organic is a little bit more complex, but our ecosystem is complex. It's one of those labels that means a lot and getting to fully understand it is kind of like learning about what a healthy farm ecosystem is because there's a lot of things that go into it. Right. Yeah. And that makes sense. And so, you know, we actually at Urban Remedy, we used to be, we're still, we've always been certified organic. And I want to talk a little bit about the certification process even. Um, And then we were doing the non-GMO verification and it was really expensive. And we were like, why are we even doing this? Because we're organic. So we're automatically, we're automatically non-GMO basically. And so we don't need to have both of the certifications, but it's been confusing for the consumer because a lot of the time the consumer will see the non-GMO verification and and think, oh, this is healthy or this is clean. Maybe it's a better word to say, because it still could have healthy ingredients. And I would say like one of the biggest things to call out is really that when it's non-GMO verified, it still could be sprayed with all kinds of toxic pesticides and chemicals like glyphosate and, you know, all of the other ones that um, conventional farming uses. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I think, um, a lot of people don't understand, even those that are fully immersed in the food system. I remember actually visiting one of my friends who is a complete foodie. Um, You know, she's been into the uh, food movement for years. And I visited her after she had her first kid. And she was like, oh, you know, I used to always choose organic, but now I'm more concerned about GMOs now that, you know, I'm feeding my kid. Um, so I've switched over to buying non-GMO products and I was like, oh, did you know organic means non-GMO? And she was like, what? I did not know that. So I think it's this, um, this misunderstanding that a lot of people have mostly because organic is so complex, but non-GMO is definitely one of the central components of organic. Yeah. So I know. So it's really confusing. So that's why I wanted to bring that up. So hopefully everybody understands. We'll just make it super simple. Organic already always means that there is no genetically modified substance and seeds, ingredients in the certified organic product or crop or whatever, depending on what you're buying. And the non-GMO verification means it's not made with non-GMO seeds or ingredients, depending on what you're buying, but you still most likely are being exposed to the synthetic toxic pesticides and chemicals. And it's also related to glyphosate and what it's sprayed with. And it's just excluding the seeds. So it doesn't mean that the animals that are that you're eating have been treated with the same care as the organic certification, meaning like have pasture time and grazing time and are not fed. Oh, I guess if it's not GMO verified, they're not fed. GMOs, but they are different. So organic already encompasses all of that. It's an organic, I guess we would just say it's the cleanest product in terms of fruits and vegetables and ingredients that you can buy. So while we're on this conversation on this, sorry, on this topic. So when, so, cause we posted something about this and one of the comments, and I would love to know how you would respond to this 
Well, this isn't totally accurate. It really depends on the kind of organic certification. Some, including USDA organic, allow growers certain chemicals to use during outlier circumstances. Can you like dive a little deeper into that so we can understand? And I know there are some synthetic pesticides that are okay to use with certified organic in certain circumstances. I'd love to just like get into the little bit of the nitty gritty so we understand that. And also, so it will help me understand how to respond to these kinds of questions. Yes, I love this. Let's get technical. I love jumping into the details right away. So the general guiding rule is that if it's synthetic, it can't be used on organic farms. And if it's naturally derived, it's okay to use on organic farms. But there are exceptions where non-organic substances are allowed for use in organic products and on organic farms. And there are cases where naturally derived products are prohibited from use on organic farms because of their toxicity or persistence in the environment. So for the handful of synthetics that are allowed for use on organic farms, they have to be analyzed by the National Organic Standards Board to make sure that they're compatible with organic principles. Um, there can't be any non-synthetic or alternative organic alternatives. It can't be harmful to humans or the environment, and it has to be generally recognized as safe without any residues of heavy metals or other contaminants. It also needs to be essential for organic production. So an example of an allowed synthetic is hydrogen peroxide. Um, but I have two caveats that I'd like to highlight. One is that, as I mentioned, there are only a handful of synthetic exceptions allowed for use on organic farms, but this gets brought up time and time again. And to me, it's kind of a red herring. Mm -hmm. You know, why is there so much focus on the few synthetic exemptions to organic when conventional systems have literally thousands of synthetic chemicals approved for use? And those materials are often extremely toxic. And then second, one of the things that fundamentally differentiates organic from conventional is that organic farmers can only spray materials as a last resort after they've already tried everything else. You know, in conventional systems, pesticides are preemptively sprayed or they're the first line of defense. Organic farmers are required to use non-chemical techniques, so things like crop rotation, um, selecting resistant varieties, using nutrient water management, um, providing habitat for the natural enemies of pests, and things like releasing beneficial organisms like ladybugs to protect crops from damage. It's only after all those preventative strategies have failed and the pests are still there that an organic farmer can use limited amounts of those handful of very carefully vetted pesticides. What do you think the percentage, I don't know if you know the answer to this, what do you think, like in from the United States, for example, what do you think the percentage of the time would be when a farmer would have to resort to using those on average? Like, is it is it commonplace or is it very rare? It is not commonplace. It's rare. And I think that's another misconception. You know, people hear that there are a few exemptions that farmers are allowed to use, and then their mind immediately jumps to, 
oh, they're just using those all the time. But it is rare because like I said, those farmers have to show that they have literally tried everything else. And most farmers are creating these ecosystems that have these checks and balances. And there are actually a lot of really cool studies that show that if you have a healthy farm ecosystem, you can control a lot of, especially the pests, that people would usually find on the farm. So if you have, um, you know, these healthy uh, predator insect communities like ladybugs, like spiders, um, parasitoid wasps, you can actually do a good job of controlling a lot of pests most right. of the time. And I'm sure that, I mean, as you and I both know, um, there's been a lot of disinformation put out and a lot of, you know, so-called independent studies on genetically modified crops. And when you look at, you know, the amount of lobbying um, and, and around agrochemicals and um, the GMO, the whole GMO world, you know, they spend a lot of money on these um, articles and on these studies. And so it is really confusing for people because you can literally read 1700 papers on why GMOs are safe. And then you could go to the other side and read why organic is safe and why they're not. So it's really confusing for people. And I think this is, there's su there's such a line drawn in the sand that, you know, a lot of, it just really depends on what you read and then being able to be a critical thinker and also understanding, you know, what's behind that. Yeah, and actually that's one of the things that we try and combat at the Organic Center because there is so much information out there that one of the things that we focus on is only pushing out scientifically published articles. So that means that everything that we're talking about has been published in a scientific journal, which means it's gone through a review process where scientists, anonymous scientists that are pre-selected because they're specialists in their field by the journal, review the any article that gets um, submitted for publication, provide extensive comments and um, requirements for that study to be changed or rejected outright. And then the authors of that study have to respond to all of those. So one of the things that I always encourage people to do is look at where mm -hmm. the source of what you're reading is from. And hopefully what you're getting is backed by science, which means that it has those scientific publications. Because if it hasn't been published in a scientific journal, there really aren't those checks and balances from, um, from people who don't have a vested yeah. interest in one outcome or another. Exactly. And I was just actually, I was, you know, went before the podcast, I was just trying to, you know, read a couple, read up on like, a couple articles on the on the benefits of GMOs and what people are kind of putting out there when it relates to GMOs. And it was really interesting. There was one scientist from a he was from a teaching college and you know he was saying 
how do we know that whole foods are safe? Like there's been no long-term studies done on whole foods. And like, we don't know if they are safe or they aren't safe. And it made me laugh because I'm just thinking, well, we've only been eating like the whole foods that we've been growing for thousands of years. So, I mean, I think we would know if they weren't safe. And, you know, it's like some of these arguments that are put out are just a little bit ridiculous. But that's what I always say. Like sometimes people will say, well, I don't really like organic and I, you know, I don't really eat organic. And I'm like, hmm. And I'm like, so that means that you prefer, you know, organic is what food has always been. It's just been grown without being sprayed with toxic chemicals and pesticides. And they're like, really? And people actually think organic is different. And it's really the other way around. In my viewpoint, I feel like we shouldn't, because being certified organic, it's very expensive. And, um, and I'm sure it's very ex more expensive for the farmer as well. And so, you know, that's why, and people obviously you know, it's an issue having to pay more for organic, but it really should be the other way around, right? You should have to be certified the other way and not, we don't, we shouldn't have to certify products that are clean and grown in healthy soil with the sun and, you know, all of that. So it's very, um, it seems like a really backward philosophy, but this is where we are. I love that. And, you know, I've actually heard somebody say something similarly, similar on the farming side where we shouldn't call organic farming organic farming that should just be farming because it is what we have you know been growing for you know millennia before um before chemicals came onto the scene and so what about like talk, let's talk a little bit more about the the pesticides and the herbicides that are used in non-organic organic farming and some of the I'd love to hear you know as you said you're basing your information on scientific studies so can you talk a little bit about some of those chemicals or the most popular ones and the effects that you found they have on uh, people, adults, children, breastfeeding mothers. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. And this is actually an area where there is a plethora of science out there. And this is this can kind of be surprising to people, even people within the research community. There has been so much research done showing that conventional pesticides have negative impacts on humans. Most of the research that I have seen has been done um, in farming communities. So um, people who live in rural areas where a lot of these chemicals are used or on farmers and farm workers themselves. And almost every single chemical that you look at, there are studies out there showing that at these high levels, of exposure and those high levels can be from people working in the field but also from people who just live nearby can have negative impacts on their health and some of the most poignant work that i've seen has been um, from a group out of uc berkeley search that has done these amazing studies that looks at um, the lives of these children from before they were born. So the study started over 20 years ago, um, measuring maternal concentrations of pesticides. So they looked at the pesticide levels in the blood and urine of pregnant women. And then they have followed these children throughout their lives to see what the impacts of those different levels of pesticide exposure are. And they found that um, high levels of exposure 
are linked to all kinds of cognitive developmental problems. Um, everything from seizures to um, uh, traits that are common in autism to IQ levels. It's, it's really, um, it's some really impactful work. When it comes to residues on food, there have there has been a lot less work on this, mostly just because it's hard to control for everything else in people's lives, um, depending on what they eat. But there have been a couple studies that have been coming out recently, and I think that as we get more data, we're going to see this more and more often, that there is a correlation between eating um, fruits and vegetables that are conventional, that have higher levels of pesticides, and um, certain types of cancers. There's also research that's starting to come out on um, fertility, both for women and men. So eating organic food is important for maintaining fertility. So for those of you out there who are thinking about having kids, um, eating organic can be really important. Um, so we're just starting to see the tip of the iceberg when it comes to connecting consumer health with organic, but that is built on this enormous base of research about the impacts of pesticides on farmers, farm workers, and farming communities. As an acupuncturist, I had a private practice for about 11 years, and I um, one of my specialties was fertility. And when I would put women on a organic diet, that was one piece of the puzzle, um, I saw amazing changes in their health. And so I can personally say that, and other friends of mine that are doctors, naturopaths, you know, medical doctors, naturopaths, and acupuncturists have seen the same thing. And, you know, this... When I talk about this, it can be really scary, especially for parents or for expecting parents. So I'll also um, pair the pair the really stressful studies with some studies that have also shown that eating organic is very effective at reducing and for some pesticides, nearly eliminating your exposure. So really, um, it's stressful thinking about how all these pesticides can impact our health, but the good news is that it is actually pretty easy to reduce your exposure by eating organic foods. And there are also studies out there that show that even if you can't eat a 100% organic diet, even just doing what you can, eating as much organic as you can, still has a big impact on reducing pesticides in your body. And that's such an important message for parents. I'm a parent. I know it's hard enough to get my kids to eat something other than like plain pasta, let alone making sure that their diet is always 100% organic. So you can relax, <laughs> even just eating organic some of the time, most of the time, still has a big impact on reducing pesticide levels. Absolutely. And you know what? Knowledge is power. And so, you know, even if you're just hearing this today, just taking a, a smaller step of maybe just looking through your cabinet and seeing what is, an orga what is organic and what isn't organic, and then just trying to choose organic in the future. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing to mention is that 
You know, unfortunately, most of us are exposed to pesticides, um, you know, without ingesting them, but in our environment, like glyphosate is sprayed pretty much everywhere. Um, you know, we, somebody was just spraying it, even though we have, we already know that we don't use it at our office or around our office. And recently they changed um, gardeners and I, and somebody was spraying it and we had to, you know, educate them that we don't use this here, but it happens all the time. So a lot of times people don't even realize in their own backyards, if they have a gardener, that a lot of times they will use things like glyphosate without you knowing it. And then it does stay on your property and it doesn't wash away and you can be exposed. So because of the fact that we are exposed to a lot of toxic chemicals and pesticides in our hair care, face care, skin care, laundry products, you know, hopefully people don't use air fresheners and things like that. Um, by changing those those choices that you make in your life, choosing a non-toxic, you know, laundry detergent, non-toxic household products makes a big difference. And then also, obviously, if you can eat food that has lower pesticide residues, um, it makes a really big difference in your and your family's health. And I mean, there have been quite a few lawsuits um, related, like you were saying, related to farm workers being sprayed with these chemicals and them having cancer or them, you know, their children being sick, or I, you know, I've read a bunch of them. And there's been a lot of lawsuits, one, I think from like Johnson and Johnson and Dow and Monsanto, you know, over the years. Um, and so it is so it is really important as a parent. I'm a parent too. And I try to get my son, you know, to explain to him without scaring him how important it is for our bodies and for, you know, the health of Mother Earth to make these choices. Cause when we make these choices, we're voting with our dollars. And really, when you're choosing organic, you're really supporting the health of the soil and the earth and your family's health. And so I, for me, it's, you know, one way that you can, you know, be a little bit of an activist or make changes by making, you know, these choices when you're shopping for your family. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think people are surprised when they find out how many pesticides are on conventional food. So we did this study um, where we were measuring different levels of pesticides, antibiotics, and growth hormones in organic milk and then conventional milk and it was oh. shocking the difference between the two so conventional milk had all kinds of pesticide residues they had antibiotic residues two of the antibiotics that we found on um you know almost half of the samples we looked at were illegal aren't even supposed to be used growth hormones were up to 20 times higher in conventional milk than um in organic milk organic milk on the other hand zero levels of antibiotics of all of the currently used pesticides that we tested for none of them showed up in organic so you know i think some of these um some of the findings out there are pretty surprising especially because we're starting to develop laboratory methods that can pick up smaller quantities of these chemicals. Whereas before the testing methods were so crude that you really had to have a pretty high level of a pesticide to be able to detect it. Now we can look at much smaller levels and we're starting to realize, oh my goodness, this is 
everywhere on conventional food. Yeah. And, you know, what you just mentioned with the animals, I think that is another really good point is like, if you, I, I saw, I was able to see eating animals a couple years ago and it's, um, it's not a film. It's, it's really talking about factory farmed meats and it's, it's actually not a vegan film where they're trying to get you to stop eating meat. They're actually trying to educate people on the practices of factory farming. And when you watch that, um, film and you really understand the way that these animals are treated um, to increase milk production, to increase um, meat volume, for example, with chicken and turkeys and eggs. Um, it's so alarming. I mean, it actually makes you never want to eat meat again when you watch it, or at least factory farmed meat. Um, but you know, that's why choosing organic um, meat is so important as well, because who wants to eat, you know, an animal that has, you know, it's only grows, is only born with like one leg because it's like modified to produce more meat or like these cows that can't move and are just fed these growth hormones. So they, they produce more milk and they're basically like suffering and have absolutely terrible lives. Um, so that's another great reason to choose organic, um, certified organic meats, um, milk, like you said. I mean, if you're going to do one thing for your kids, if you're feeding them milk, you know, choose organic. It makes a huge difference for the quality of the animal's life and it's better for your child. And the amount of pesticides that gets used in the production of um, especially dairy products. Yeah. So we looked, we actually have this really cool calculator on our website that I encourage everyone to go check out. And it looks at the amount of chemicals, everything from fertilizers to pesticides to um, drugs that are used in the production of dairy. And there are these little buttons that you can choose. And you can, you know, there's one that's, all right, how many chemicals are avoided from uh, all of the organic milk that's produced in the US? And then we have a lot of what if buttons. So what if all of the milk that were made in the US were organic? What if all of the cheese in the United States were organic or all of the yogurt in the US were organic? And you can see these, you know, it's like Olympic swimming pool wow. pools full of pesticides that we could avoid. What about, I'm curious, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I was thinking, I was just remembering seeing this film. Um, what about um, pigs? What about like pork? That was one of the things that seemed like it put a huge um, burden on the environment, like the feces and everything of the pigs and what they're fed and how it goes into these tanks. Is there a difference um, between animals in terms of like pesticides? I know you just mentioned dairy and milk, but what about like between organic raised um, pigs and non-organic? Yeah, there are differences there. Since dairy is the biggest category of organic um, that, you know, out of all of the animal products, that's the one where there's the most research. So that's why a lot of our research is on dairy. Um, but that most of those generalizations that I make for dairy cattle are true of all the animals that are produced organically. And one of the coolest studies that I've seen come out, I mean, coolest and also extremely concerning, um, looked at thousands of data points um, of uh, different meat that was produced organically and conventionally to look at antibiotic resistant bacteria. And they found that because antibiotics are used so frequently in conventional 
animal production, conventional meat has a much higher level of these antibiotic resistant microbes mm. than organic. So that's another another part of the puzzle that plugs in there. Right. And it's like, you know, who knows what superbugs are going to be created by, you know, giving these animals all these antibiotics all the time. I mean, I think they're already seeing it. Um, I've read they're already seeing that. And so that's why they're increasing and changing the levels of antibiotics because they're creating these new strains of what you just said. Can um, organic meat producers use antibiotics in any circumstances or is it never? Never. Okay. Never except. So if the animal is sick, organic, um, organic farmers can't let their animals be sick. So they can't withhold antibiotics if that would cure a sick animal. However, after that animal gets antibiotics, they're no longer considered organic. So they can't be, if it's, you know, a meat animal, they can't be sold as organic meat. If it's a dairy cattle, that um, the milk from that cow can't be called organic. So if you're buying organic in the store, you can be sure that no antibiotics were used. Um, but that doesn't mean that organic farmers have all these sick animals right. that they won't give antibiotics to. They are required to make sure that their animals are healthy, whatever it takes, even if that means giving them antibiotics, but then that, you know, that animal isn't considered organic. Right. And I'm sure that's true. I have a friend who is a farmer and she is organic and she actually was telling me how that happened, how some of her animals became sick and they were organic and, you know, obviously she didn't want them to suffer. So she had to use the antibiotics, but obviously couldn't sell them as she does her other products as organic. Um, okay. So when I first started Urban Remedy about nine years ago, you know, one of my, you know, as somebody who's always eaten organic, I was like, oh, I'm, my company's going to be organic. So I like called CCOF, who's our organic certifier. And I was like, can you send me the paperwork? They sent me all the paperwork. And I was a super small, you know, I just started my business. I didn't even have a storefront at that point. And I had no idea how difficult it was going to be to become certified. Like I looked at the paperwork and I thought, oh my God, it was like more difficult than buying a house. And so um, I think a lot of people really don't understand what it takes um, to become organic certified and the cost around it. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And because I think for smaller businesses, you know, it is some people just cannot afford to hire the extra people to do the paperwork because everything has to be traced back to the farm. And when you have, you know, your audits and, and checklists, you know, they will take a product and we have quite a few products, but they'll take one and then you have to go back, you know, for the whole year and verify that every ingredient in that product was organic. And basically what that means is somebody has to be documenting every time you get a tomato in or lettuce in or whatever it is. And it is a very laborious process. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? And how can people that want to be organic, but maybe don't have the funds, like what else can they do? I just, I wanted to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, it's interesting you bring this up because this is one of those myths that I hear out there that organic certification is just this greenwashing that companies do. Um, you know, it's just kind of something they tack on to their product to make it to sell it. And I cannot help but laugh every time I hear that because like you said, it is a process. It is a lengthy, intensive process to get certified organic and to keep that 
organic certification. It's not something you do once and then you forget about. It's something you have to repeat every single year. So you really and truly have to be committed to the organic ideals to go through you this could send those people my way you could give them my phone number and i'll be happy to talk to them because it was i mean literally we just have a salad that we're, we do like seasonals and we have a cheese that we're, we've already it's a vegan cheese we've been using for literally years and all of a sudden they flagged there might be a sub ingredient in one of their ingredients and we had to like halt everything and it took like weeks just to verify this ingredient that came from japan and, you know, I called our certifier and I was like, you guys, we've been using this cheese. It's certified organic. And they certified organic. And they're like, nope, until we like get to the bottom of this one thing. And it was so frustrating to me, but I was also very impressed and had a lot of pride to be working with them that God, I mean, this is how much care and what detail they're looking at in this like small sub ingredient to get this approved. I mean, it's very, very detailed and can be really frustrating because it can hold you up in a lot of circumstances, <laughs> but it is really difficult. It really is. Yeah. So I can kind of step through just the broad um, process for people. So the first thing that an organic operation needs to get certified is an organic systems plan. So that's a plan that describes what organic practices they use, how they're going to adhere to the organic standards, how they're going to support biodiversity, soil health, etc. And that needs to be developed by the entity getting certified. Um, then the certifying agency needs to agree to it and it needs to be verified by an inspector. So someone from a certifying agency actually goes out to the farm or handling operation and makes sure that everything in the organic systems plan is accurate and, and that the producer is actually doing what they say they're doing. Um, they also need to keep, like you mentioned, extremely detailed records of all their activities, any material that they're using in their organic operations. So you mentioned, you know, that one ingredient from Japan, every single part of what you're doing has to be, um, has to be documented and traceable. And the preliminary inspection um, is then followed by annual inspection. So, you know, I mentioned this gets done every year. Plus, there can be unannounced inspections. So like pop quiz inspections where an inspector just shows up and says, prove to me that you are organic. And inspectors look at all the fields, all the facilities, they check all the records. They basically verify that the operation is in compliance with the organic standards. And then after all of that, the certifier will do a final review of the operation to make sure to make a decision about the operation's organic certification. And they can either approve it, um, approve it depending on resolving some issues or deny it entirely. Yeah. And it costs a lot of money. You know, like I was saying, it costs a lot. And so sometimes people will go, well, your juices are more expensive or your salads are more expensive, which they are. And we try really hard. Our margins are pretty small. But when you have to pay, you know, five full-time employees to keep track of these records, and it, it's not even just, 
you know, the ingredients. It's also the cleaning products that you use at your facility. It's how you wash things and like what you can use to wash the produce. And I mean, there's so many different variables um, that we're talking about. So it is, you know, really expensive. You have to do everything in accordance to the organic standards from the time something is planted until it is in the mouth of the consumer. So it is, it is a very detailed um, process. So yeah, I, I'm glad we talked about that. Um, and what about, so this is another question I have. You know, I've recently been doing a couple podcasts on sustainability. And one of the things we talked about is, you know, some farmers can't afford to be certified organic, but they are growing food to the organic standards, um, whether it's regeneratively or, you know, whatever kind of crops that they're growing. Um, what about those farmers? Like, is that thought about in the organic industry? And, um, you know, because of the cost, I just wonder if it ever excludes certain farmers that can't afford it. Yeah. And actually, um, there are several programs out there that try and help those farmers if they do want to get certified organic. First of all, I just want to applaud them for adhering to the organic standards, even without um, being certified, because um, that is really they're basically they're doing everything they can and it shows that they're truly committed to the environmental and health benefits of um of organic um but then there are also organic cost share programs that they can apply to to help them um if that's a process they want to go through um i've definitely spoken with several farmers who um have you know, taken advantage of that process and of the cost sharing. And I've said it helps them, especially because there is this organic premium that then farmers can take advantage of if they're certified organic. And that premium actually, even if yields are lower on organic farms, that premium has shown in, in research studies that organic farmers can actually make more money. And I've seen this time and time again, especially on small um, and medium-sized family farms, where I've spoken to farmers who said, you know, the reason I transitioned to organic is actually because I was farming conventionally, but my farm is so small that I couldn't compete with those mega farms out there. Um, and I just wasn't making ends meet. And so I transitioned to organic. Now I can get more for my product and I'm able to support my family. And a lot of them were in this situation where they were going to have to sell their farms. I love that. Um, yeah. And that's one of the things um, that we that I saw in the film. And I was able to talk to the director. And so it was really interesting um, of the film I just mentioned, Eating Animals. Um, a lot of those farmers, especially the chicken farmers, were like forced into farming this specific way um, because they would they they were so behind. And if they didn't do this and they'd have to pay like the larger farmer who was helping that was related to the FDA. I mean, the whole thing is a total nightmare. And um, a lot of them did lose their farms or they were struggling so hard. At, but once they moved to doing more like heritage turkeys or, you know, the, the other kind of organic farming related to the way that they were farming, they were making more money and were so much happier to not be involved with, you know, treating animals so inhumanely. So I really want to get into one other thing that's related to farming. Um, one of the things when I talk to people about, you know, organic versus GMOs, there's this big 
I'm going to say myth, but correct me if I'm wrong, about a genetically modified seeds being the be-all, end-all to feeding the world. And that if we don't use these GMO crops and seeds, that people will be starving in Africa and around the world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So yeah, I also talk with people a lot about feeding the world. The first thing I do is I ask them, I ask people to think long term about feeding the world because, you know, people are thinking about yields right now, but it's not just about producing food now. It's about, are we going to be able to grow food in 10, 50, 100 years? And let me tell you, if we are not taking care of our soil, if we are using toxins that are killing off all of our pollinators, if we are using practices that are contributing to the acceleration of climate change, it doesn't matter if right now GMO seeds can have, you know, 20% higher yield because in 100 years, we're not going to be able to grow food, period. So it's a matter of food security that we take care of the um, farms on which we grow food. So that's my first point that I like to make to people. Second point is that as we think about how we feed the world, it's not just about farming practices, it's also about other factors that go into the food system. So when you think about things like food waste and food loss, for example, around 30% of the global food supply is lost or wasted. And that's bigger than the yield gap between organic and conventional. So if we could tackle food waste or have dietary changes where people eat a little bit more um, plant-based protein and the meat that they eat could be a little bit more sustainable, that would actually have huge, huge implications for the amount of food that we're able to produce. So it's not just about farming practice. It's also about all of these other factors that go into how we eat, what we eat, and how food gets from the farm to um, our kitchen tables. So thinking about food waste, thinking about dietary changes. And then the third thing that I talk about when it comes to feeding the world really looks at um, yield growth in organic. So there's all this research out there showing that in a lot of cases, organic cannot um, match the yields of conventional yet. But if you look at the last decade, organic is still this nascent field. Most of the research, um, both time-wise and funding, goes into conventional agriculture. And that's why conventional agriculture has such high yields. Whereas organic, even though it's only had, um, you know, a couple decades and a fraction of the amount of research dollars go into it, we've already been seeing yields um, vastly increase over those last few decades that research has been there to help organic. So I'm really optimistic. If we could devote a little bit more time, a little bit more funding to organic production research, I think we'd be able to match the yields of conventional, which is so encouraging to me because Yields are easy. That's, you know, if it's just yields you're looking at, that's one factor that we can focus on to improve. 
when you're thinking about the cascade of environmental problems that go along with conventional high input agriculture, those are incredibly complex. I would much rather focus on how to increase yields in organic than how to decrease all of the, the negative environmental and health impacts we're seeing in conventional, you know, conventional agriculture contributes to climate change. It's um, destroying our soil. It's polluting our water. It's causing um, people to have all kinds of diseases associated with um, spraying these chemicals. So that is much more complex than just saying, hey, let's research organic, how to improve the yields, we can get there. So I'm really optimistic. I know when people say, you know, we need GMOs to feed the world, I'm always like, and that's what I've heard too, is that we are, we're wasting so much food. If we were, if we put that waste into feeding people that needed to be fed, and I heard that actually the genetically modified seeds that they brought to India, for example, a lot of the farmers went back to the original way that they were farming without the glyphosate or the genetically modified seeds. Um, I know we don't have a lot of ton more time, but I do have a, I have a few more questions that I really want to ask you about. At a high level, can you talk a little bit about soil health and the difference of organic farming versus conventional farming and what it does to the soil and what it means to consumers and just inhabitants of the earth? Sure. So, um, Organic management builds soils in a lot of different ways. So I know that this is a theme I keep coming back to, but organic is really complex. It's what's called systems-based. So it takes multiple factors into account. So it's not just one practice that organic farmers are doing that's building soil health. It's how all of these different strategies add up. So things like using um, compost and manure and... Um, and cover crops to give the soil nutrients. It's things like crop rotations where you're rotating crops um, so that you can use that to suppress diseases. Um, it's all of these different strategies taken in combination that end up really enhancing soil health. And this is another area where there has been a ton of research comparing organic soils with conventional soils, showing that time and time again, organically managed soils are healthier. And that's also true when it comes to sequestering carbon into the soil. So taking that carbon that would otherwise be in our atmosphere acting as a greenhouse gas and locking it away in carbon reserves in the soil. Um, we actually did a study on this a few years ago where we took over a thousand soil samples from all over the United States. I think we had 48 states represented and we compared, all right, let's take all of the noise into account because that's another thing I hear is that, well, there's some organic farmers that aren't doing as well as some conventional farmers, some conventional farmers that are doing a lot of soil health preservation. So what we said is, okay, let's take all of that noise into account look at soil from across the United States and see what we can see. And what we found was that when we, even when we take all the noise of different farming practices, um, different soil types, different crops that are used, um, different locations, when you take all of that noise into account, organic farming still has significantly more carbon sequestered away in the soil than conventional farms. 
And that's that's pretty impressive because there is a lot of diversity out there in the United States. So it's really encouraging to know that organic farming is having a really huge impact on carbon sequestration, regardless of all these other variables that are changing all the time. And what about like you've talked about the organic and and that's so important, but can you talk a little bit about the conventional farms and maybe like glyphosate and and what that actually does maybe give a few examples related to soil health. And, you know, you were talking about pollinators and bees and, you know, glyphosate, for example, you know, since it is in the genetic material of the corn um, that's genetically modified to, so you can spray more glyphosate on it, which you can't spray off. I mean, what is that? Can you talk a little bit about what that does to the soil and the pollinators and the overall health of the farm and the land that that practice is used on? Yeah, you know, glyphosate has these really interesting properties. So it is an herbicide. It's developed to kill plants, but it has these weird properties that are kind of similar to antibiotics. And so what happens is when soil gets contaminated with glyphosate, with Roundup, it can actually alter the microbial communities within the soil. And that gets added to all the other negative impacts that are happening to the soil with things like um, the use of synthetic fertilizer. And it can really deplete soil nutrients. It can destroy that delicate microbial community within the soil. Um, it leads to soil compaction, soil that isn't able to hold water so that it doesn't fare very well in droughts. And at the same time, um, doesn't have a lot of porosity. So that means that water can't filter through it. So what that means is that um, the... Um, the soil itself is a lot less healthy in conventional systems. Yeah, we did. We had at one of our openings, uh, when we opened our store in Venice, we had the guys from Kiss the Ground come, who I love. And um, they did a soil um, experiment for the kids. And they were showing how, you know, when you spray, you know, certain pesticides, you know, on the land that a lot of times the water doesn't sequester into the soil. And so it leaves this kind of like hard, dry soil. And then they showed, you know, like organic soil and how, you know, how you can make the soil even healthier and how, and then they poured water on both of the soils and you could see how the water just, you know, soaks into the ground. So you can, so it's actually great because you can actually save water um, by regenerative farming practices, which was really interesting. It was interesting to see that. Um, so you had mentioned meat, and I think this is a really interesting topic because, you know, there are companies like um, Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger, um, and a lot of people feel like moving over to those meats um, instead of eating regular beef or red meat or whatever kind of burgers they're eating is better for the environment. And I actually want to know what your opinion is on that. I mean, I personally would never eat those because I think they're highly processed and a lot of the ingredients and they say plant-based. And then I look at the ingredients and it's like isolated soy protein and canola oil and, you know, modified food starch or potato starch and things like that. Um, so I have my own, like, obviously, um, viewpoint on that. But what do you, you know, I think it's really interesting because if you look at, you know, like I said, I have a good friend of mine is a farmer and she has a um, regenerative farm in, um, 
Mount Shasta. And so I've talked to her a lot about it and understanding how, you know, if you're buying her meat, it's actually uh, carbon positive and the way they farm and everything. And a lot of these fake meats actually, when you put them next to each other, pound to pound, actually um, are worse for the environment. But I just wanted to get your viewpoints on those. Yeah, I don't think it's an either or. So I don't think that you have to either eat conventional, um, you know, uh, plant-based meats or organic. I think that you can do both of those things and that's going to have the biggest impact. I will say that when you are choosing animal products, choosing organic is even more important because of all of the different um food chains that go into the production of that meat or that dairy. I'll also mention that there are plenty of farms that I've visited that incorporate animals into their crop rotations in this really healthy um, and beautiful way. And we actually have a study going right now with UC Davis, along with a few other universities, on um, different ways that you can integrate livestock into crop rotations in a way that builds soil health. Yeah, I guess my point was um, a lot of these fake meats aren't organic. And so, you know, it's like the choice of, I, I guess it's just, you know, the way that you, I guess if somebody, it depends if somebody's even eating meat or if they're a vegetarian. Um, but I guess my, my point was, um, Sometimes I feel like it's a little bit misleading um, when people are saying, oh, we're eating this fake meat for the environment, but then you look at the ingredients and it's all processed, genetically modified ingredients. So I just think it's a good thing for people to just look into and be educated on um, when you're choosing what foods you're putting into your body. Right. Yeah. My suggestion is always stop buying those giant, super cheap, extremely sketchily produced um, steaks from your, you know, like big box store. Right. And if you're going to be um, looking at meat when you buy meat, try and buy higher quality. And right. that might mean eating a smaller serving size because of the cost difference, but you're going to be having such um, a better impact on the environment. I agree. Okay. And I have just like two more questions and I know we have to wrap up because we I, I could we could probably do two podcasts with this because I have so many questions. Is there a difference between, I was listening to a podcast recently and they were saying, you know, they were saying, hey, the difference, one of the differences between organic and non-organic is that you can use sewer sludge um, in non, in, you know, non GMO or conventional. And then the guy made a point, he goes, but we, but organic farming uses manure. What's the difference between sewer sludge and manure in farming? <laughs> yeah. So sewage sludge, um, is from human excrement. Manure is from animals. And, um, I will also say that most of the manure that gets used on, um, on farm fields is composted first. So it's, it's very different. Um, yeah. So, and so is sewer sludge, is that like cleaned or anything, or is it actual sewer sludge that has like all of our everything in it? Oh, it's definitely treated. <laughs> it's treated. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yes. Okay. 
But is there a different, I mean, is there a difference in terms of the health of the soil, like in sewer sludge versus manure? Honest question. I'm really curious. You know, I have not looked into that research. Um, I do work with a lot of international partners. um, And some of them are in places like India um, and other locations that have high population density without um, the kind of infrastructure that the United States has. So, I mean, in most places in the United States, you're not going to worry about sewage leakages into your field, but in other countries, that's a huge problem. Um, So I have spoken with researchers who are trying to think about how to use um, sewage sludge uh, safely in fields, but that's not, it, it's, I, I haven't done a lot of reading on it since it's not allowed on organic. It's right. not something that we really have considered. Yeah. Okay. And um, I was just reading about that there was some newly approved pesticides from the FDA that seemed to be potentially um, very toxic. Do you know anything about that or have any comment on that? Yeah. Um, so unfortunately we're in this place where Um, every pesticide that we use, and this is true for both herbicides and insecticides, pushes for selection of resistance to those chemicals. So what that means is that the more we use these pesticides, the more the things that we are trying to kill, whether it's insects or weeds, end up being able to survive despite these chemicals. So there's this... um, this race between the um, chemists and chemical companies and life where chemical companies have to continually come up with new pesticides because those insects and plants are developing resistance to the ones that are already in use. And what that means a lot of times is that the less toxic ones become less effective over time, and they have to start developing new ones that could be more toxic and that then get used in a cocktail. So at that point, you're not just spraying one kind of herbicide or insecticide, you're spraying a whole bunch of them together. And there's a lot of research out there that shows that the impacts of pesticide cocktails are very different. It's not always additive, those negative health impacts. It could be synergistic where A plus B doesn't always equal A plus B. It Mm -hmm. equals some completely different and worse environmental or human health impact. That's, yeah, that's really scary. And what about the impact on conventional um, pesticides and synthetics um, on bees and pollinators? Like what, where are we at with that right now? Yeah. So, you know, the Organic Center actually did um, a review several years ago that looked at this. Um, and it, it it came out of this conversation I had with a reporter who was asking me, she was saying, you know, there are all these studies showing that these insecticides are having a negative impact on our bee community. Do you know why that is? And I thought about it for a second. And then I said, oh, of course, it's because they're designed to do that. It's because these chemicals are specifically designed to kill insects. So it's no surprise that when we spray them, we are harming our pollinator communities. 
And what we found when we were doing this review, though, was that it wasn't as simple as just not using pesticides, which is definitely a big part of it because pesticides have a huge impact on pollinator populations, even when they're used in low doses, even when they're not killing the pollinators directly, they can still decrease their immunity, they can confuse them. So if you're looking at honeybees, honeybees don't know where the flowers are. Um, but in addition to that, conventional farms also have less habitat for mm-hmm. bees mm-hmm. and less food sources for them. So um, that's one of the things that we showed that with organic, organic not only doesn't use these toxic pesticides, they also have more food sources, more habitat, and a greater diversity of habitat and food sources for pollinators. Um, and that really tracks with the research that's been coming out over the last, I'd say, 10 years, showing that organic farms consistently have around 50% more pollinators on them than conventional. And one of the cool studies that I've seen recently shows that if you are a conventional farm and have organic farms nearby, it can actually help your pollination. So it can actually improve the pollinators on your farm to have organic neighbors. So it's an argument for supporting your organic neighbors. I love that. And I bet, I wonder if like regenerative farms have even higher amount of pollinators on their land or if it's the same. Is it different than organic? I I know it's a different farming method, but in terms of pollinators, do we know that? Um, You know, regenerative is kind of this tricky term that means different things to different people. So um, a lot of the people that I talk to when they think regenerative, they're really thinking just about the soil um, and not tilling. But organic actually incorporates so many other things into it that um, I would predict, I don't think there has been a study comparing regenerative to organic, mostly because a lot of the regenerative practices originated on organic farms. So organic is regenerative. Um, But since organic also incorporates all these other things like reduced pesticide usage, etc., I would probably guess that if you're comparing a conventional farm that uses a few regenerative practices to organic, which uses multiple regenerative practices, organic would still have higher pollinator numbers. Right. Which is so important, right? We It's so sad when you hear about, you know, bees and birds, you know, being poisoned by, you know, um, conventional, like things like glyphosate and things like that. It's just, um, it's, it's a terrible thing. So that's another reason to support organic. Um, so I know we're over an hour and I actually even have more questions, but I'm going to save it. Hopefully we can do a follow-up so I can ask even more questions and we'll see, um, if our listeners have more questions, but to end, I would just love your final thoughts, um, on the benefits of organic. I know we've gone over a lot of them, but maybe just, um, replaying kind of your favorite, your top thoughts on choosing organic and why. Yeah. Um, so the way I view organic is that when you are in the grocery store, um, choosing organic is an easy way to support mitigation of climate change, support healthy soils and support pollinator populations and biodiversity, and also make sure that there aren't um, chemicals that you don't want to see as residues on your f- food. 
I love it. That's so important. So hopefully everybody got a lot of takeaways and questions answered. Um, That was the goal of doing this podcast. And I want to thank you so much for all the amazing work that you do and the Organic Center does. Um, And I just am very appreciative of that. And hopefully we can do another podcast, a follow-up podcast, because like I said, there are so many questions when it comes to organic and there's so much Uh, misinformation on both sides. So just clearing any of that up, I think is a great service to people that are interested and want to make the best choices they can for themselves and the planet and their families. Absolutely. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us at the You Are Love podcast. For more episodes just like this, please subscribe. This is Nika and I'm wishing you a beautiful day.